We did verse by verse on Tuesday. We did one chapter. There's a long chapter. And the background here, as we come to 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we saw last week where Solomon has completed the temple. It's been more than a decade. He's been the king for more than a decade on the heels of his dad, the great King David. And the temple is built, and they've brought the Ark of the Covenant in, in the dedication at the holy place to the Lord, and the Lord's presence came and filled the room, the holies of holies, the cloud came, the holy cloud of the Lord. We talked about that last week. And as we come to chapter 6, Solomon addresses the assembly. So the presence of the Lord has filled the place of the temple. You know, the bronze altar's out there. They've got the animal sacrifices going. They've got the holy of holies and all the priests are there. And man, here you go. The presence of the Lord comes and fills the place. And so Solomon, he stands up and he addresses the congregation. And in verse 1 of chapter 6, he says this, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. Then later on, after he addressed the assembly and began to pray to the Lord in the midst of the assembly, he said in verse 18, But will God indeed dwell with men on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. Yet regard the prayer of your servant and his supplications, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry of the prayer which your servant is praying before you, that your eyes may be opened toward this temple day and night, toward the place where you said you would put your name, that you may hear the prayer which your servant makes toward this place, And may you hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place, hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then later on, he gave various prayer supplications in this time. In the latter part of the chapter, in verse 41, when he's done praying, he says, Now therefore arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. So we have a beginning comment about the temple. We have the middle comment in his prayers to the Lord about the temple. And this closing comment, it's a a profound day for Israel. And he makes very clear, although the temple is a central place of worship for Israel and will be for centuries, this famous temple of Solomon, he acknowledges in his prayer that obviously the Lord is not limited to this temple that though it represents his presence and his place with God's people, the people of covenant, because Israel alone was in a covenant with God in the Old Testament in that 1,500-year period from 1,500 B.C. to the time of Christ, which we call the Mosaic Covenant, which he made with the nation of Israel. And this was their central place of worship. The Ark of the Covenant represented his presence. The cloud had come. And so for a decade, they'd watch this beautiful building being built, all the plans, and now it comes together, and the Lord affirms his pleasure with it, with his presence coming in the cloud, and it's on. The temple has happened, and Solomon makes clear, though, though it represents the presence of the Lord, it by no means limits the Lord. So it's a place to come and worship. It's a place to connect with the Lord, but of course, God's not bound to this temple, and he makes that very clear in the beginning of the chapter, the end of the chapter, and his prayer in the middle. And so much like how the temple was in the Old Testament, when you come to your local church congregation, whether you're meeting in a strip mall or, you know, a brand new facility 
I think what it must have been like when the congregation met in this facility for Shoreline Baptist, you know, 50 years ago, how exciting it would be. This, this room we're in is called the Worship Center, if you don't know that. It's called the Worship Center, and it's considered worship when you come here to sing praises, to learn from the Word of God, to put in your offerings, have fellowship with one another, to dedicate children, to do weddings, and to do memorial services, and to live the human experience. This is the worship center. It's different than the gym, right? It's different than upward basketball and the youth sports or the food and fellowship there. It's different than running around out here and even the classrooms over there and even the youth upstairs right now. It's different. There's something about here. You know, maybe when you're growing up and you went to a traditional church, and for me it was the base chapels with my dad being the Marines or the Catholic churches because my upbringing with my mom, that I would... You know, I would identify with that place as a place of worship, you know, with like the Via Della Rosa stained glass windows. Those are childhood memories. Even as a young adult living in Vista, though I would not consider myself a church-going person, I was God-fearing, and I would often go to the Catholic Church during the week when no one was there and just sit there and think about things and consider what's going on in my life. And, you know, I'd want to make things right. I wasn't quite sure how to do that because I wasn't willing to turn from my sins. But at least I knew where to like a worship center. To me, it's like, oh, the Lord. I knew the Lord wasn't in St. Francis, but it was a flashpoint to connect that way. And maybe you can relate to that. I certainly think when you come here, you treat this sanctuary different than other places you go. If you were a church and we were part of a church meeting in a strip mall like we did in Virginia Beach in 91, 92, 93, I would hope when you walked through the doors into that building where the sign said Calvary Chapel Hampton Roads and you walked into the sanctuary, that you would have taken it as a not what it used to be like kinder care next door or something like that, but this is a holy place. That's what this temple was for them. And when we think about the church gathering in this church, we want to have that, but we realize, of course, God's not limited to being in this building, but we also recognize, like in the book of Revelation, that Jesus walks in the midst of his churches and, and wherever two or more are gathered. So we, we, we find that balance, right? We, we find that balance. The location is literal, God is in heaven, and this is when we gather here twice a week, we, we connect with the Lord, and we connect with one another as God's people, much like they would have in their context of their covenant and their time. So that's, we can say that this was God's dwelling place symbolically and somewhat real, but not limited, and even so when we gather tonight, this is God's dwelling place symbolically and somewhat real for us. And with that in mind, when we come here to attend service or we bring friends and family or neighbors to attend service we want to come with the idea that this is a holy place and this is God's dwelling place not literally but but kind of you know because the Lord is in our midst and with that in mind there's some things that David excuse me that Solomon pointed out here in this text that remind us of when we come together for a service here or at any other local church when we come together, what we're really, some things that we want to consider tonight. And the first one is found in verse 14, where David had given his introduction to the people and he begun his prayer. And as soon as he began his prayer, he said in verse 14, Lord God of Israel, there's no God in heaven on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept what you promised your servant David, my father, you have both spoken with your mouth and have fulfilled it with your hand. Now, he also went on to say this. 
Therefore, Lord God of Israel, now keep what you promised your servant David, my father, saying, you shall not fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel, only if your son take heed, your sons take heed to their way, that they walk in my law as you have walked before me. Now he's quoting what God said to his dad, David. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word come true, which you've spoken to your servant David. It can be well pointed out and noted that it's always a good idea when you're praying to feel confident to pray the promises of God to God. It's just like when a kid might say, well, Dad, you promised we go to 7-Eleven after the baseball game whether we won or lost, right? You promised a Slurpee and a donut after the ball game if you dads stuff like that you know you might say or you promise and you learn early on as a dad or a mother when you make a promise to your kids they'll they'll remember it you know they 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 will remember it and when I won this contest in Mexico back in 98 the world masters for 35 and over world championship I told the kids before I left because they were like why is dad you know mom's just like he's just gonna go do what he's gonna do so I went down to New Mexico won that event, but I told him, if I win, I'm going to come back and buy you guys toys, because we were, like, really living pretty frugally in itinerant ministry at that time. It was a challenging time financially, for sure, but it was a happy time. You know, we made the most of it. But I told the kids, you know, if I win, I'll get you guys toys. Listen, or if I make some money, well, I won, and I, I took, I remember always, I took the kids to Toys R Us and spent $500. At, you know, I, they didn't go in there because of me. Right, Toys R Us no longer exists, but it was a, it was a play. Like I, the kids still talk about it. You like, Dad came home. Hey, I promise it, and I'm delivering. And I told Jennifer I'd do something for the house, and she said new floors. So easy peasy, the money came and went like that. But it was a good thing. And we know in life it's super important that we keep our word. I mean, your word is everything, and once your word's not credible, you've lost all your credibility. That's just that's the way life works. You need to be a woman of your word and a man of your word. And God is true to his word. And Solomon, the very beginning of this prayer, says, Lord, you you spoke it, you promised it, and you fulfilled it. So he starts out his prayer, this incredible prayer, with what God had done, that God had spoken it and fulfilled it. He's acknowledging God's faithfulness at the very beginning of the prayer in the past to his dad. And he's also praying his promises for the future. Did you catch that? So he's recognizing the promises fulfilled on this day that God promised in the past. Lord, you promised it, and here it is. And he's praising the Lord for it. And you also promised this for the future, and we're acknowledging that, and we're agreeing with you on that. God is true to his promises. In the book of Hebrews, we're told it is impossible for God to lie. It's not in his character. He simply can't do it. God is light morally, and in him is no darkness at all. We can lie, and people do lie. But God never lies. Everything that God ever speaks is true. Genesis Revelation is true. And all the promises fulfilled. Well, he said, put me to the test. I speak things before they happen, and then when they happen, you know that I'm the Lord and there is no other. And put me to the test. In fact, Bobby sang that song about, you know, prophesy as if you've seen it happening. And that's how the prophets of old prophesied. So when, whether God was prophesying the destruction of Tyre and that the city would be a jetty and people would fish on it. And that's exactly how it is to this day. Or, you know, Alexander the Great would arise after the Medo-Persian Empire and the Persians and all these people. He called kings by names 200 years before they were born. In fact, so accurate is God promising the truth and speaking the truth before it happens that 
there in Isaiah, those prophecies are so those prophecies are so profound that the higher critics against the Bible just would before World War II insisted there's no way that it, it could have been written before the time of Christ because it's so accurate describing things that Jesus, who he is and what he did. And that was the beauty of a post-World War II world in 1948 when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls there. And those scrolls with carbon-14 dating are dated 300 years before the time of Christ. And they profoundly and accurately confirm all the promises in our Bible from the book of Isaiah concerning the person, the work, and the promises of Jesus. God is always true to his word. Everything he promises comes to pass. In the universe of time, space, and matter, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, it all comes to pass. So whether it's a typology, Abraham symbolically offering up Isaac before Christ would be offered up the same spot 2,000 years later, or description of what the cross looks like when you're on the cross through David in Psalm 22, a thousand years before Christ came. God always knows the end from the beginning, and he speaks it before it happens. So he speaks the prophecy, and the Bible is filled with confirmed prophecy, and much of what he's speaking is promises, and particularly in the person of Jesus Christ, it's all the promise of redemption to save us from our sins. So when you come to church, we come to a house of promise. We come to the place of promise. In fact, when I prepare every Bible study, and I remind myself this every day as I'm reviewing what my role is as a pastor teacher of this church, is the truth, to teach the truth, to lift up Jesus and proclaim Jesus, is his person and his work, to, and to exalt his promises and point out his promises and the Great Commission, which is our primary purpose of what we're called to do until the Lord returns. But I, I ask myself when I'm looking at a text, for example, next week I'm teaching at least two or three chapters, and I'll look at a text, where's Jesus? Where's doctrinal truth? Where's the promises? Where's the Great Commission? Where's the church? Where's the apostles? Where's the book of Acts? Because it's all there. Jesus said, you search the scriptures and in them you think you have life, and there that would speak of me. All those promises. From Genesis 3.15, the original sin. Well, there's a promise before that. The day you eat from this tree, you'll die. A promise is a promise. And we're all under a death sentence, the entire universe. But then there's a promise that God would send the Redeemer, Genesis 3.15, and all the subsequent promises bring us to Jesus that he would come. And so by the time Gabriel appears to Mary and says, you, will, you know, his name is Jesus and he will save his people from their sins, there we go. It's the payoff. When we gather in this worship center twice a week for church services and we open the Bible collectively, and of course it applies when you do so individually as well, we're opening a book of promises, a book of promises to every individual believer and follower of Christ for those that came before us, those that are sharing the journey with us, and those that will come after us. We dedicated Mark Coca a couple of months ago here, and that made us all think about 80 years out, you know, so to the next, next century, you know, the year 2100. Now, we're not going to be around in 2100. You do your math, you'll figure that out pretty quickly. But the promises that we wake up to tomorrow morning on the 18th of June are the same promises in 2023 that they'll be in 2021. It's, you know, Mark Coca's, uh, he'll be 77 years old, and he'll wake up at 77, and he'll have all those promises available to him in the year 2100 of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They'll be just as real for him as they are for us, and just as real as they were for Charles Finney preaching revivals after the Civil War across the landscape of the United States. And the people who listen to him are Billy Sunday and the Sawdust Trail, right? The, I mean, like, this, is, this is our legacy, and this is who we are. 
So I remind us tonight, when you come here, come with faith and come with expectation for those promises. There's no burden burden that we are carrying that Jesus can't carry for us. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and light, and I can do this. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And of course, the ultimate promise for me personally that goes over all promises is that all things work together for good. No matter what you're facing outside these doors, man, when you come to this place and you're singing worship songs or you can't even sing because you're so distraught or emotional, hear the words. This isn't a sports event, you know. This isn't SoFi Stadium with the Chargers or something or Petco at the Padres or Dodgers Stadium. Like, they play music and people get pumped up between innings or, you know, between plays. It's not, that's not the music we're singing here. Ours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. And when we sing these songs, prophesy like it's happened, man, that's what we're talking about right there. And we come to this room and we come to this holy place and this sanctuary like they came to the temple. The temple reminded them of the promises of God and Solomon started his prayer all about the promises of God. He spoke them before he began to pray and then he prayed them the very first thing. So I like that. We're reminded tonight that this is a place of God's promises. So come to be encouraged by those promises. Come to be built up and strengthened because of all the things that God's promises can do for us, above all else, they should give us confidence to walk out of this place knowing that we are more than victors in Christ Jesus for whatever life is going to bring us outside these doors. Whatever open-ended trial we're facing, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That is a promise. And of course, all the promises in Jesus Christ are yes and amen. There's no religious leader, philosophical philosopher, or anyone else that's ever lived that can say all their promises are yes and amen. I mean, Moses struck the rock twice. They didn't go into the promised land. There's something on everybody except Jesus because he's the perfect sinless one. And all those promises of the Old Testament, Jesus demonstrates in his life. He proclaimed them in his words, and the apostles affirmed them in their ministry to this day for all of us. Because all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. So come, come to this place. Bring people to this place. When you bring people to church here and we open the Bible, you're bringing them to a place of promises. Not politicians, not leaders, not bosses that didn't fulfill their word or spouses that failed them or family and friends that X them out of the will when they weren't paying attention. We are coming to the place of God's house with promises. This is the place of promises. Promises of God who cannot lie where they're being fulfilled in our lives daily. So come in faith and bring people with you. Second thing about God's dwelling place, what it was for them and it's for us, it is a place of forgiveness. In verse 22, and it, it really goes on, really all the way to like verse 40, off and on, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness, sin, forgiveness. But it really begins in verse 22, where if you sin against your neighbor, and then it goes on to say in verse 24, uh, or if your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, and then they return and confess your name and that you would forgive them. And then verse 26, he says, this is where he puts it all together, that they've sinned against you. Uh, they pray toward this place. They confess your name. That's the way of like confessing sin. They turn from their sin because you've afflicted them. They were chastened for their sin. And you forgive the sin of your servants and that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk. That should be happening every time we gather here, right? Because not only is this a house of promises, this is a house of forgiveness. This is a house of forgiveness. 
You know, so often people that don't know the Lord, they're like, oh, I can't go to church. I'll get hit by lightning. You know, oh, no, it'll, it'll, the roof will cave in when I go there. No, actually, that's when the roof's going to open up for you. Of course, we all know in Christ that we're saved by grace and that through faith. This is a, this is a place of forgiveness. This is a place where people come to be forgiven. Where, since we know we can't go back and change anything, there's all kinds of things. In 35 years of ministry, I have ministered to so many people who, you know, their sins have just been profound across the board. Drunk drivers who killed a 17-year-old girl driving the wrong way, seven years in prison. You know, they're out there doing all kinds of ministry, but they've been forgiven, but you can't bring the girl back to her family. You just, that's that. It's just... You want to go, you want to relive that day, but you can't stop living because of that day. You find forgiveness, and they did in jail. And then you come out of jail and live a good life and live for the Lord. You do that. My sister, all the heartache she caused her son, drug houses, hotels, living on the streets. But then, you know, you look what she did. She lived in the halfway house for a year, then another halfway house for another year, got clean, sober for six years, rebuilt her life, temp worker at Macy's, now a full-time employee at Home Depot, you know, by the grace of God, owns a home in Vero Beach. My sister, my daughter, Hannah, just, Barbie had surgery on her knee, so she's out for six weeks. She had to have another knee surgery, bone on bone. And Hannah sent a picture of us today. She brought food to Aunt Barbie today. You know, like, isn't it so cool that my, my sister's there where the rest of my family is and that Hannah, the, prop, the pastor's daughter, the prophetess, brings the food over to Barbie, and oh, it just makes me happy. When I'm with Barbie sometimes, she just starts telling me how sad she is for all that she did to her son, Jimmy, and what she put him through. He's the original latch, latchkey kid. He really was. I remember driving through Carlsbad with Jennifer one time. Jimmy went by on a bike during school hours, like at the age of eight, just went by on a bike doing his own thing. He wasn't homeschooled. He was just... That's the way it was. Of course, he's uh, a police officer with the city of San Diego now and attempting to become a SWAT officer as we speak. So we esteem that and we value that. And they've been reconciled. But, you know, my sister's 56, and she goes, I just did this, and I wasted I spent six years pushing a grocery cart around in Carlsbad, living behind the dollar store. Right. So let's write a book about it. She called me a couple days ago. I mentioned this, uh, I think, on Tuesday. She called me a couple days ago to complain about TV Land TV having a disclaimer that you might be offended by watching Gunsmoke or Bonanza. I'm just so upset. I'm like, Barbie, just take a breath. There's nothing you can do about it, all right? Well, I'm offended by this, and I'm offended by that. Barbie, just relax, all right? Maybe turn it off and watch a motivational video or something. You know, I just, you know, like it's, 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 hey, don't let it bother you. Last time I was there in February, I told her, you should be speaking. You're a wonderful story. People need to hear of someone who wrecked their lives from drugs and alcohol for years and has been clean for six years and is a functioning member of society, fruitful with the Lord. You have a story, and people need to hear it. Because homelessness is the number one issue in America, and drug and alcohol abuse is the number two issue in America. And you are testimony exhibit A that you can come out of this against all odds. So when she called me yesterday... She wanted to call about something, you know. And I said, Barbie, listen, I just sent you a video. I want you to watch this video. It's going to motivate you to just think about what you're doing and where you're going. I go, your life's bigger than what you're getting paid right now at Home Depot. And that's okay, Barbie. 
But are you, is that what you, like, Barbie, you're not, you know, don't put it in cruise control and buy your little plants from Home Depot with a discount and, and just isolate yourself. You need to get out there and tell your story. Go to AA, go to NA, start telling your story. You need to write the book. Oh, the book, the book. Barbie, write the book. You're in bed for five weeks, can't do anything. Get yourself a notepad or a laptop. Use your new phone you just got. Start writing your story. One chapter on your childhood, one chapter on young adulthood, and just go straight to it on the streets. What it was like in and out of incarceration when the female chaplain came to visit you, Linda Barrett, who sang at our wedding, your mom and dad's, uh, your brother and sister-in-law's wedding. Because Linda Barrett sang at our wedding, and Linda Barrett's a chaplain at Calvary Vista, and she would often visit my sister at the jail in Vista. Write, write the story. Tell the story. How every pastor tried to fix you, and you knew the, better, the Bible better than them when you were drunk. Tell your story. True story. They all, oh, hey, Barbie's here. Go give it a go. The new guy's like, I got this figured out. And they're like, how can someone intoxicated know the scripture that good? My sister went to Bible studies for years before she got addicted to, you know, the hard drugs for pain relief. And it was there. It used to drive me nuts when I'd try to challenge her. And she'd start quoting all this scripture. I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, like. The testimony that matters in the human experience is someone that's been forgiven, confessed their sins, found forgiveness, and been restored and walked in the right way. You know, she said, the Lord will show you that you'll teach them to walk in the right way. My sister walked in the right way. And it was Mother's Day six years ago where I saw her on the streets. And she said, the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming. I'm like, the Russians are not the problem. I said, you walking away from rehab is the problem. I go, the next thing in your life is to go to rehab. It was always court-appointed. And then she would walk away, and they'd put her back into Otay Mesa for a month, and then she's back on the streets. I go, Putin's not your problem. You in the mirror is your problem. And what you need to do is stay in rehab and finish rehab. And that's exactly what she did. And then the compound effect of good decisions went forward from there. She's walked in the way that you may teach them the good way in which she walk. She's at all the women's Bible studies. She has all of her friends, you know, and, and Calvary Bureau is about a thousand people where she goes to church and she's kind of like, hey, it can happen. It works. You know, they're like, have you met Hannah's Aunt Barbie? And Barbie's like, hi. You know, oh, we see her at Home Depot all the time. I used to call her Rehab Barbie and she was okay with that. But my wife's like, don't you call your sister Rehab Barbie? <laughs> you know, Rehab Barbie's like, Barbie's like, I know, I know, I know, I'm sober. You know, and Jennifer's like, don't call your sister Rehab Barbie. Okay, I won't call her that. Hey, letters from murderers asking if I truly think they can be forgiven. Oh, man, I've so much in my journey of being a pastor, people have asked me, can I truly be forgiven? And I say, yes and Amen. Because all the promises in Christ are yes and amen. And Jesus, when he healed the paralytic there in Matthew chapter 11, he said that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. Because, you know, when he, he said your sins are forgiven when they let him through the roof, the four friends, and there he was, he is paralyzed. And he looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. And, of course, the Pharisees were there going, like, who does he think he is that he can sit? And he goes, hey, that you, can, that, you can, that you may know that I have the authority, I say to you. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or pick up your bed and walk for someone that's never walked. I say to you that you can all know that the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the Christ has the authority. I say to you, pick up your bed and walk. And he did. 
And then how about the woman caught in adultery in the Gospel of John? When everyone, you know, Jesus wrote in the sand and everyone walked away. He goes, nor do I, I condemn you, but go your way and sin no more. That you may teach them the good way that they should walk. Right? Caught in adultery, the good way that you should walk is to not stay in adultery. The good, good way that you should walk is not continue to abuse your body and your brain and all this stuff with drugs and alcohol in the streets and being a petty criminal. The good way you should walk is to go forward. Repentance is turning around. And Jesus came that we might have life and that more abundantly. And if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. And John made this so critical in 1 John where he said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that he is Jesus Christ. And as much as I respect the dignity and the tolerance of other cultures, philosophies, and world religions, you and I know in Jesus' name, he's the only one that can forgive sins. No one else has the authority to forgive sins. So people can be good people and maybe leave the human race a little bit better than other people who don't, but it doesn't help them the moment they transcend dimensions and step into eternity. The defining moment of my life in the autumn of 86 after the attempted suicide there at County Mental Health in San Diego, and the lady said, you need to forgive yourself, young man. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's kind of the issue, but I don't have that authority. And I walked out and I said, you know, only God can forgive me, and I am not going to ask for forgiveness unless I'm willing to turn from the sin that I'm in. You see how that works? Sure you do. But, you know, once I was willing to turn from my sin, I, I, that burden was released from me, and a whole new life began for me, which brings us to this day to be your pastor and have already been a Calvary Chapel pastor for 35 years. And just like that, a career and a lifetime unfolded. What a good decision not to look in the mirror and say, you forgive yourself now. You can do it. <laughs> like, like the Lord says, can the leopard change his spots, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we need to be born again. And isn't it wonderful that when you bring people to church, when you come to church, this is a place of forgiveness. And You know, back in the day, they'd go to the bronze altar, you know, 20 by 20, the huge barbecue, and everyone's just slaughtering bulls and goats and rams for their sins, and it's never going to take away the sin. We just hear God, the gospel preached, and we look up to Jesus, lifted on high, and we're forgiven. It's a wonderful thing to, to bring people here that need to be forgiven. To bring yourself here to need to be forgiven. And so often people fall out of fellowship because in some cases they're in sin and they don't want to repent from it. But often they have repented from it, but they're embarrassed to come back. Don't ever be embarrassed to come back to the Lord. And come back to the worship center and the house of the Lord. Jesus said he rejoices when you find when the shepherd finds the one sheep that went astray, Right? He has a 99. The Lord rejoices when the one sinner comes in here and repents and finds that forgiveness and chooses to walk in the way the way the Lord has for him. Sin leaves a brutal mark and it beats us up and wears us down and discourages us and the devil reminds us of it. We can never change the sins of yesterday other than to receive forgiveness in Christ today and to see the way we should walk in and to go forward and to just go forward and not not be beat up for the failures of the past or be psyched out over the uncertainty of the future. Because so often people are like, I would repent, but I'm afraid I'm just going to fall again. Well, you know, what if you die tomorrow? Wouldn't it be good to repent today? I mean, if you're thinking, oh, I'm going to fall, for sure I'll be back at the meth house or whatever. I'll be back in the bar in two months. Well, Well, listen, you might die in six weeks, so why not repent tonight? Just go forward and see what happens. 
See, the devil wants to kick the can down the road for receiving forgiveness and, and walking in the right way. And he wants to kick you to the curb for the, the failures of the past. The Christian experience is going forward always. And the, this temple was to be a place for forgiveness. And even when they're in a distant land like Daniel and Babylon, they would open the window and face the temple and acknowledge their sins and acknowledge that the Lord was with them. That, that's the whole idea. We can ask for forgiveness anywhere, but there's something special about coming to the house of the Lord and singing praise songs and being with other people who are struggling just as much as you and I are and just be forgiven. With the pastor, people so often have two different responses concerning their personal sins. They don't want the pastor to know anything about them. And honestly, I don't really want to know about your dirty laundry unless you want to tell me. And even then, I, you know, I'm just going to encourage you to give it to Jesus and go forward. So we're so sometimes people don't want to say anything, but they just need someone to pray with them, and that's what we're here for. I always say every service, we're available for prayer afterwards. And if there's something like that, we want to pray with you. It's not something to be embarrassed about. We want to help you go forward. We want to help you go forward. So a lot of times they don't want to say anything, or they just want to... The other mistake is people want to make the pastor their savior, right? And so I'm going to be the one that... No, 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 no I didn't die for you. <laughs> I'm here for you, and I'll pray for you, but I didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. This is the place of forgiveness where Jesus is lifted up and that forgiveness is, his mercies are new every day, every morning. And the third and final thing about this place is the place of invitation. Verse 32, this is an amazing text where it says, as Solomon was praying for the nation of Israel, he said this, moreover concerning a foreigner, now look at this next phrase after the comma, moreover concerning a foreigner, who is not of your people Israel. Note that phrase. That's a powerful phrase. A foreigner who is not of your people Israel. In other words, someone who's not in the covenant. Someone who's not, they're not in the covenant. They're not of your people Israel. But has come from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray in this temple, then hear from heaven in your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you. Wow, that sounds like all the promises and all the forgiveness. That all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. In other words, when the foreigner or the outsider, and we might even say a non-believer, comes to the house of worship, to the place that they can come and know that this is the place of the Lord. This is the place of truth. This is not the place of ambiguous philosophies and ideologies, but this is the place of truth. The church is the pillar and ground of truth in every generation, as we see there in Timothy that we're told that. That when we come here and we bring people here to this place, an outsider, a non-believer, a family member, a relative... Uh, that sort of a thing, or a coworker, or a random person, that they can come here and hear the truth. And, I mean, that's kind of the whole idea when Pastor Chuck Smith had that famous saying about the new carpets. Rip out the carpets and let the barefoot hippies come in. The challenge with churches, historically, particularly in the Western world the last couple hundred years is, you know, churches can become like a, a club. We'll say like a yacht club. Some churches like a yacht club. You know, it's like, 
<laughs> By the way, when I went in the Hall of Fame last week in San Diego, so, uh, surfing Hall of Fame, I went to the wrong place. It was Mission Bay Boat Club, but there's a Mission Bay Yacht Club. And so I didn't want to be late, so Jennifer and I got down there way early, got off at Garnett, and the Yacht Club is, you know, on the coast. So we go, and Jennifer and I like, this just doesn't seem to be the place, and it's the Yacht Club, and it's like, you know, all the big yachts, and, and, and I'm like, there's no one here. This, this, is, this isn't it, you know? And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, like in an airport, I'm at the wrong terminal. I kind of got that vibe going, right? And Jennifer's like, well, let's just, let's just all, let's stop. What's the email say? It says, right here, oh, boat club. Okay. So we turn around back on, like, the coast highway, come back on Garnett, come out at Mission Bay, and, you know, we go to the boat club. It's on the bay there. And you kind of go here and you go there. And we saw these people parking. You know, there's hundreds of people going to this event. And uh, we got out of the car, and there's, like, a parking attendant lady helping people. I go, hey, is this where the yacht club is? She goes, this is no yacht club. This is the boat club. <laughs> All right. You know what I'm saying? She said, no, this is no yacht club. This is the boat club. So just, if you understand what I'm saying, you understand what I'm saying. Like, the yacht club is like the yacht club. The boat club's like, hey, you know, you know, Gilgan's Island, right? You know, the skipper, Marianne, you know, that kind of thing. The boat club, right? And it was the boat club, right? It was a great event. What happens is, so often with churches, is they make a church... It, it regresses as it gets older into being a yacht club. And it gets really comfortable. And it goes a certain way, and it's a yacht club. But really, the church is a life-saving club. One thing about Australia, I've been all over Australia. You know, most of Australians, most Australians live on the coast. And each coastal town, whether it's New South Wales, Queensland, Sunshine Coast, Victoria, Melbourne, most coastal towns have a rescue club. Life-saving club. Life-saving rescue. So you have Victorian football rules, Aussie football rules. They love their Aussie football. And surfing is huge, tennis, swimming. But, man, the surf rescue clubs are the big thing in Australia. And they compete club against club. And it's huge. It's national TV. It's bigger than surfing, the rescue clubs. And they're all about rescues. And they train. And they wear the little beanie caps and everything. It's kind of like you know, the Huntington lifeguard thing. But this is no. Aussie, fair dang am I. You know, they'll go beat the shark up and rescue. I mean, they're, like, they're Aussies, right? Like, it's the real deal. It's rescue. So no matter what beach you're at, Narrabeen, North Sydney, Cronulla, South Sydney, there's the rescue club, and you see the boats, and you see the clubby guys, and they're all there, and they're Speedos, and like, you feel safe. They're not a yacht club. They're there to save people, not exclude people. And so often churches can become yacht clubs and exclude people. But the church exists to save people. And Solomon really hit on something here. He said, they're going to come. They're going to come like the Queen of Sheba. They're going to come from all over the world to hear about the glory of the God of Israel, who is the true God. And they're going to see the splendor of Israel, how God's blessed us. And they're going to realize we serve the living God who does not dwell in the temple, but dwells in heaven. And he alone is God. And for centuries, the people are going to come here and see this. That was the plan. And something that's so fascinating to me is, of course, in the Old Testament, the nations came to Israel, to Jerusalem, but in the New Testament, the church goes out from Jerusalem to the nations, right? Jesus said, preach this gospel to every creature. The Great Commission, he says, go to all nations, right? So in the Old Covenant, the nations came to Israel, and the temple was a central thing. But in the New Covenant, 
the church went out from Jerusalem, and Jesus is the central thing. Which, of course, Jesus said about the temple, why do they want to crucify him? Because he said, tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up. But this he spoke concerning his body. In a lot of ways, the temple represents Christ. It was the holy place. Christ is the holy one. And the spirit was with, the the cloud was in the temple. Jesus sends us the spirit to indwell us. So he's not limited to one place like the temple. He can indwell every believer worldwide through the Holy Spirit. And our job is to get the temple to them. Jesus, the one that ultimately is, is the place of forgiveness, is the place of promises, and is the place for the foreigners who are not of your people. Because what do you see in Revelation, the book of Revelation, you see every tongue, tribe, and nation praising Jesus. So when you think about worship generation or any local church that you could be a part of in your journey, it has to be a life rescue saving place. Yeah, you know, there's things that happen where we have to kind of deal with this or deal with that. And healthy things happen. Misunderstandings happen. Weird things happen. And you have to deal with weird things. Like, in a life rescue situation, with, if you say it's a life rescue station... You know, like, you know, we want to, we want to be accommodating, but you, you can't let something take something over, right? So there is a balance there sometimes. And if you've ever been in a big service where something gets really weird and something happens and you got to stop the service and this happened with Big Calvary plenty of times, you just, you just got to deal with it because as we would also say, when you bring your friends to a life-saving station, we got to, we got to protect the integrity of the sanctuary, that we have to maintain the integrity of the sanctuary. We can't let it be hijacked. Talking with Pastor Sam Coca the other day, he said, you know, one of the things that drove him nuts growing up in the church that he grew up in is there was all this weird stuff and no one ever dealt with it. And he said, it just created like a real weirdness. And him and his siblings, he's going, oh, we got to go to church. It's going to be weird. It's going to get weird. And they didn't want to bring anyone to church because it was weird. Pastor Chuck said to a bunch of pastors years ago, one time I was in the room Small groups in your pastors. And he said, if you don't deal with weird things, you'll only have weird things. See, sometimes, right? But still, it has to be a life-saving station. It has to be a life-saving station. As we go forward as a church ministry, we want you to know that we want you to bring friends and family here. If they smell like cigarettes, they smell like cigarettes. You know, if they're squirrely, they're squirrely. Like, I mean, it's, we, we got to rip out the carpet. We have to reach the next generation. It's a life-saving station. And I'll close with this story from my daughter, Hannah. They had a youth camp recently. And they have a lot of youth. They have a tremendous ministry in Vero Beach there. Her husband, Nate, does all the chaplaincies at the public high school. And they've been through a lot of heartache. They've had tragedies in their church, in their youth group, as many of you know. And the last year, they've had two suicides. Uh, one transgender-related. And um, so... Another church called them and said, hey, can we come and be part of your youth camp? And uh, Nate and Hannah were like, sure, you know, bring your kids. And they came. And, uh, you know, it's Florida. It's 85 degrees, and it's a youth camp. And you got girls in bikinis and guys in, you know, trunks, whatever. It is what it is. You know, it's boys and girls. God's designed us to be attracted to each other. You don't want it out of control, but, you know, you want fire in the fireplace. But if you ignore this fire, then you're going to just get strange fire. I used to say, it's a natural thing. I tell the guys, are you attracted to the girls? They're like, <laughs> I go, good, you should be. That's a natural thing, but it's got to be a godly thing. 
Well, anyways, the, the wife of the other youth pastor pulled Hannah aside and says, well, we're really upset that your girls are not in uh, one-piece bathing suits. Hannah said, let me tell you something. First of all, you invited yourself to our party. Second of all, I'm just happy they're here in their two-piece bathing suits. We've been to two memorials this year for teenagers from our youth group who committed suicide. So let me just tell you, I'm really happy they're here in their two-piece bathing suits. And if you don't want to come to a youth camp with two-piece bathing suits, do your own next year. It's a life-saving station. Not surprising, her husband's ministry, radio ministry, is called Middle Ground because we're a life-saving station. Nate Gallagher's teaching ministry is called Middle Ground Radio. We've got to find the middle ground. So this is a place of promises, a place of forgiveness, and a place of invitation. So bring your friends and family here, and, you know, we'll figure it out, okay? We've got to go forward. We're going forward in Jesus' name, right? This is that place. This is that place. We're the church, and this is that place.